0: Tonight, I look at the prayers of the Church in Revelation, and in looking at the prayers of the Church in Revelation, specifically, we contrast them to the prayers of the angels. Now, at face value, you would expect that the prayers of the angels would be more cosmic, more epic, uh, more transcendental, transcendent, and the prayers of the Church, by comparison, would be smaller scale, but in fact, the opposite is the case the prayers of the church, i.e. of humanity, peer way more into the heart of God, much closer to God, and have some really significant qualitative differences to the prayers of the angels. And when you look at this different language in the prayers, you begin to see two things. You see the superiority of humanity and a radical humanism emerges. And, And secondly you see the function of the church in the cosmos as a vast amplifier of the knowledge of God. This is a really, uh, a really breathtaking journey. We begin it by confronting a problem, which is the, the fact that for, for the evangelical tradition, humanism has been a dirty word. In fact, it's, it's a synonym for the, the sinful condition of, uh, of independence, and the feeling that we can get to God without him. And that's that's a very sad position that the church has painted itself into. We begin with that problem and we see how the prayers of Revelation have a very different view, a very positive anthropology. And then we end, after we've been through the prayers, with um, really just a, a sweep through the breathtaking incarnation-based theology of the church fathers, Justin, Athanasius, Irenaeusively on. And we recognise in these early church fathers they were very much closer to the prayers of Revelation than they were to the sin based emphasis of the post Reformation. So enjoy this. It's a wonderful affirmation of all that Jesus has confirmed in our human condition. Okay, so the, the, the angle we're going to do tonight is the prayers of Revelation which I think are, um, are quite, si- uh, quite significant um, as to the role of humanity in the cosmos. And they, they actually um, address the broad topic that we're going to be talking about, which is uh, evangelism, and uh, an radical view of humanism. So, so that's, that's the angle we're going to go at tonight. Now, um, let's just begin with uh, what I'd see the as p- the problem um, or the position, which essentially is, is humanism a dirty word in, in Christian circles? So uh, yeah, well, I certainly, as I grew up, it was a dirty word. I mean, when I, I suppose, I mean, I I no longer think it is, but I, I'm pretty sure that what I received as as kind of wisdom was that humanists were atheists. Mm -hmm. um, Unless you studied um, the Christian
1: humanists and the
0: Reformation, of course. Yes, Peter, you are wiser than most. But but let's just say the phrase total depravity did us no service. Um, it's one of the less successful. Even, even if I agreed with Calvin's doctrine, it is just not exactly a great PR campaign. <laughs> um, and I don't agree with his doctrine. But anyway, um, which I'm about to talk about. Um, look, I love Francis Schaeffer, but where he stands on it is is actually in the anti-humanist camp. Um, and you know, I, I actually did read in preparation for this quite a bit of um, the guy who was there, and I thought, well, gee, I just don't agree with this, actually. <laughs> I think all power to him, he did a good job, but I actually think he's on the wrong track. I don't think his study of kind of, ch- of history of ideas was that profound, now that I've read so much more. But, you know, and this saying, I think, he's a wonderful man, because I need to preface what I'm saying tonight, um, and, uh, and all the time, as being a... W- really uh, understand where I... Come from, particularly with a literary background. I'm I'm a really deep student of hermeneutics and multi-perspectivalism, and have been all my life. I just get it that we're stumbling towards grace. That that we, we, none of us will know everything, and we're not meant to. And, And as I've said before, I think that tremendous prayer was prayed for me when I was a young person by the elder in the church I was at, that I would learn to serve my generation by the will of God. He was quoting, quoting the. Peter's sermon when Peter talked about David, David served his generation by the will of God. I mean, that's all we can do. Uh, We serve our generation, which means probably we'll take a certain angle and push, have a certain fight, and and that will tend for us to emphasize and discover certain aspects of the gospel and neglect others. Because we just, and so, and most people are absolutely freaked by that. And I sat at a business conference this week with a guy who told me he'd lost his faith. He's now 70 when he was young and he was studying theology. And uh, he had, quote-unquote, a reverse road of Damascus experience. <laughs> and, and we had a lovely conversation, and I, I just pushed him a little bit on it. Now, his reverse experience was because he was given an over-rigid framework to believe in that couldn't handle multiplicity of views. So if there are multiplicity of views, therefore there is no truth. You know, and he had this terrible choice, which was a false choice. And, and I just kept thinking that if he'd been taught by someone like Ian Proven or had a broader view of multiple perspectives and been comfortable with multiplicity is OK, he would not have had that false choice and decision. It was very sad. I'm, I'm not giving up on him. <laughs> I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm going to target him with some stuff. But, but that's why uh, certainly, so for me to say I think Francis Schaeffer got stuff wrong, it's not just for me to say I don't think Francis Schaefer did a great service to the world, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But where we are now, like 50, 60 years later, with different debates going on, we might need to rediscover other stuff to be relevant. That perhaps he didn't have to when he was doing it. That's really, and I'm sure that whilst I might be confident of stuff I'm saying now, that like exactly the same thing would happen. Even because I've seen it happen to myself. I've seen myself change my mind, which is kind of scary. And I'm no longer frightened about that. By the way, if you really want to pursue this, and we should we should consider getting John out for Gospel Conversations perhaps next year is John Stackhouse's book on a Christian epistemology called The Need to Know. Has anyone read that? Yeah, you have. It's good, isn't it? It's really important. It should be way more, more circulated than it is. The Need to Know. The, the title says it all. Right. The normal epistemology is that I, I go into it with a view of total truth. The Christian epistemology is God is, God is kind of pragmatic, He's made us to know, but to know only what we need to know, if that makes sense, um, because he's got it, we're not. So it's, it's a really... It's, it's, a, it's a very, very um, um, profoundly argued book. Rightio, so, so I'm just saying, you know, for me to say that Francis Schaeffer didn't get everything is not for me to say he was not a greater mind and servant of the Lord than certainly I am, but nonetheless... He said this that you know, where is this humanism? Is the system whereby men and women, beginning absolutely by themselves, try rationally to build out from themselves, having only man as their integration point, to find all knowledge, meaning, and value. So it's autonomy, it's independence, and it's false because there's no revelation in it. So, so that's his position. And that's fine. Yes, probably. Yeah, I, I need to think about that, that one. But there's just an enormous irony in, you know... So, so there's an enormous irony in that single sentence because the people we'll be studying, the early church fathers, would have totally disagreed and totally agreed, but for man, and I, I, I don't know if I capitalised it or the person that, who was quoting it capitalised it, they would put Jesus Christ. So they would say all humanism is a discovery of Christ. Um, and um, anyway, that was fra- that was his point of view. Now, what he uh, what he was um, I tried to diagram what I think you know this kind of idea of uh, social history is, um, which is that uh, you know if the bottom line is time. And the top line is, you know, an increase in autonomy, and quite for autonomy, you could almost say like rebellion, that, you know, as religion and faith decreased in its hold on life, we're, we're living in a secular world, mm-hmm. which means the dominant paradigm is now reason. So one way of putting the antithesis, which, which I and many others would think is a false antithesis, but it's in everybody's mind, is reason versus faith, mm-hmm. right? And... Reason is triumphing, and faith equals superstition is declining. Now, that's kind of like simplistic, but most people have got that in the back of their mind very, very deeply. And probably for most people who are a little bit educated, uh, only a little bit, because is the renaissance is the turning point when we got freed from medieval superstition and um, and reason okay. uh, began to, to dominate. Here's Jason with some wine. Um, so... Um, incredibly ironically um, exactly the same model is advanced by the secularists and the theory one person called it the the subtraction theory which is exactly the same model except the vertical axis is it's good Um, (laughs) and we've got progress and progress equals the death of religion and the rise of reason and that's how in, in the less religion there has been in society, um, the more progress there's been. You know, death of superstition. That, that is a very strongly held view by people, and people have written books on it, and so on. It's exactly the same model. Um, and probably flexing at exactly the same point of the Renaissance, or the, and then the Enlightenment, um, which is quite extraordinary. But if we step back, and one of the books which I have really been studying for a lot lately, I've studied it for a long while, for, for, for reasons other than preparing for this talk, but I just will draw your attention to it, um, by uh, uh, Jens Zimmerman, who's a Regent graduate, and uh, he spoke at a conference that I heard many years ago, and it was just God's providence, because he was actually the only person talking on a subject that's very close to my heart, which is the liberal arts and the humanities. So a lot of this stuff, like... Humanism gets a real, gets very practical in how you interpret the liberal arts and the humanities. Now, most people today. Now, but let me let me declare myself. I'm the chairman of the advisory board to the ANU's Humanities Research Centre. You know, so I'm I'm really putting a lot of my efforts to the to the re-centralising of liberal education and the humanities in our education system. But within the humanities, there is the dominant camp is the bottom right, that the humanities is the growth of reason, and its antecedents are all the classical people. I kept on doubting that and saying, what's the role of the church in the humanities? And Zimmerman is the guy who answers the question, very obviously, that without the doctrine of the image of God, you cannot have humanism. So, this book's all about it. It's phenomenal if you're interested in the topic. Very, very scholarly. Religion, uh, humanism, and religion. Um, And what is really interesting is what if this entire model is wrong? Because essentially, the the Christians, the fundamental, the evangelical Christians, and the atheists have the same model, they just interpret it as uh, evaluated differently. So, what if the model's wrong? Um, and, that, and we'll talk about that tonight. So uh, down the bottom was this is not my comment, but it's a comment of a couple of sociologists, including Paul Ricoeur, who's a great philosopher. He's a Christian philosopher, but we all inhabit a secular age, and in this we are in it. That's our world. Uh, we this is the world we all live in. This is our audience. Secularism, post-modernity, and and I'm very mindful of Tim Keller's. You know call that we need to reframe the gospel for this age so that religious and non-religious people alike share a common social imaginary the the phrase of social imaginary is the phrase of Paul Rieur in other words we've all got to the back fa- deep 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 this kind of picture of, of society and the, and it's the same picture we just take different views of whether it's good or bad now um, so, That gives us a broader context and I think a really important reason to say what is the, what is the view of, of humanity that's uh, intrinsic to the gospel. Now the point of view that I'll be advancing tonight um, unsurprisingly is, is the one I'm sure we'd all hold that humanity is, that the human race is incredibly important and close to the heart of God. Specifically, in, in the context of the scriptures, we are superior to the To be human is to be superior to the angels. Now, that's quite important, because I, I take the word angels for all, all supernatural beings or concepts of, of great powers, um, which humans are, Christians and non-Christians alike, are always intrigued by, even if they don't believe in it, otherwise you wouldn't have a movie like Star Wars being the biggest-selling movie of all time. It's kind of like epic forces of darkness that are bigger than us. And um, you know, whilst today we might not believe in angels, I, I have to say, as a student of history, I just cannot account for these vast, dark movements that sweep through, like Nazism and uh, you know the Pol Pot regime, merely by an accumulation of human intervention, you, you know, to be honest with you, when I read the story of Cambodia and Pol Pot or Nazism or Russia, if I've got Daniel beside me with great big beasts warring in heaven it's what makes most sense to me mm. and yes we do that as Christians it's a, it's a narrative we have that there's something bigger forcing this through um, but frankly that narrative is no different to what you see in Star Wars they just capture exactly the same feeling that we're, we're in some great battle with bigger forces than us at play, it just feels like that the incredible point of the Bible is actually to admit that, but to say we are superior in capability to all of those forces, which is an astonishing claim. Now, uh, you'd be you'd be very familiar with Paul's simple statement in 1 Corinthians 6 that we will judge angels. And he, it's one of Paul's throwaway lines. Like he's actually not, the paragraph is not headed, we will judge angels. Now he's going to spend 10 sentences. No, 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 just like he's actually telling them, why are, you going, why are you fighting with each other? Why are you going to court? Don't you? Don't you remember we're going to judge angels? Then he moves on to something else, is what Paul always does. And Hang on, hang on, hang on. Would you please expand? But He doesn't. <laughs> um, but the person who does expand is the intriguing, you know, chapter one of Hebrews, and we would distract ourselves if we, if we went into it, but it is an extraordinary <coughs> chapter. Um, I'm pleased to say that when I spoke to Miroslav about it, Miroslav Volf, he had exactly the same... <laughs> confusion about it that I had originally, which is what on earth is he talking about in chapter 1? What, Like, why are you going out to prove that God is superior to angels? This is self-evidently true. What This is a really strange argument. Um, uh, but he, he says that, that, that Christ became uh, so much superior to the angels um, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Now, I just think packed up in that there is a huge anthropology which is really intriguing. I haven't got time to do it justice tonight and and look, frankly I couldn't anyway because I still only understand about half of it. Continuing on, but about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will be forever and ever. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He never called the angels son. He never said the angels will rule. That's what he says, that's what he's saying. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? It's an extraordinary chapter. Now, what's critical? There are just a few the critical points. One is that the, the superiority that he's talking about begins in Jesus but ends with the church, i.e. humanity. And I, see the, I see the church, I used to see the church as an escape hatch uh, of all the rest of the human race, but what you'll see tonight is I actually think the church is more an amplification and an intensification of all that is human the church sort of stands for the rest of humanity
1: which church?
0: the believers <coughs> the, no, the, not the no. No, no it's just the, the, the phrase of those who, are, who have believed in Jesus so maybe
1: uh, just a question uh, another discussion but how come what well, some scripture elucidate, exalt himself challenge do you want to be there I'll, I'll have to that's another
0: problem. yeah like uh, really just hang with me what i'm talking about
1: He's
0: He's amazed, uh it, it's it's a, it's a minor point lucifer is hardly mentioned in the bible so oh, we'll come, come back to it.
1: I'll to it
0: yeah um, th- th- this is this is important okay. hang, Concentrate on what i'm saying you must understand this passage is extraordinary he spends the entire first chapter arguing for the superiority of the jesus over the angels, and he ends by seamlessly slipping that superiority into the church. The angels will be servants of those who will inherit salvation, not of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right? So he has he has he has collapsed us human beings together with Jesus. That's the first point. Um, and then the second point is that the nature of the superiority is clear. He is not arguing for the pre-incarnate superiority of the Son of God he became superior suggests the Incarnation to me and the superiority is explicitly in this Jesus being the son of God when we get on to the early church fathers which we'll do at the end of this talk you will see they actually the phrase they tend to use they use two phrases for Jesus the preincarnate Jesus they call the logos the word. And the Son of God, they would call Jesus on earth. So, the superiority, no, no angel can, can have this relationship of sonship. That's what they're saying. Which, and that measures the gap, because sonship is so much closer to God. Um, the superiority of which he is talking, which is attributed to sonship, culminates in cosmic rule, and only in those in that sonship. And then finally, it's it's kind of superfluous to argue that Christ as God is superior, but it is necessary to argue that Christ as incarnate is superior. The Jesus who walked on the earth, who had hands and feet, who looked for all the world like a human being. He's arguing that Jesus is superior. Um, i.e., and then tucked in that <coughs> humanity is superior to the angels. So there's a big anthropology at play in the first chapter of Hebrews and um, that that's that's a pretext to, to 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 what we can then see in the book of revelation so I, I'm looking at the prayers in revelation and I've really I've, I've thought about this for, for years and years and years um, so I've never talked about it before publicly but it's the first eleven, the first eleven chapters. So let me just give a summary and put the prayers in. So there's a dramatic flow here, and I do not put myself forward as any professional expert on the Book of Revelation. I'm just reading it from a literary point of view. Chapter one: phenomenal um, revelation, visitation of Jesus Christ to John on the Isle of Patmos, and and Jesus says, "I'm." got the keys to the kingdom of life and death. Chapters 2 and 3, we get essentially to the church, seven of them slugging it out on the earth, none of them doing a great job. They're all sort of in the trenches, (laughs) Um, probably a bit depressed and, you know, it doesn't look particularly glorious. Um, Chapter 4 opens with a tremendous uh, uh, movement up to a throne, and a door opening in heaven. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice i had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, come up here and I'll show you. So, like chapter four is like, let's pull the veil back and I'm going to give you the real story of what's happening. And, and as we read chapter four onwards, I think it's really important to remember what something I heard Tom Wright marvellously... Um, Emphasize that this idea we have that there's kind of some vast spatial difference between heaven and earth is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually the Bible, you know, that says in Deuteronomy that you know this that, that God is not very far away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's this kind of sli- the, 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 even even the idea of even perhaps a spatial differentiation between the kingdom of the created order and heaven is is probably false. But anyway. Um, with with that sense of closeness in mind, we read from chapter four onwards down. Chapter four, the first prayer is the prayer of the angels, um, or actually, the, it's actually the creatures, the living creatures, and they're whirling around, and they're very much like the living creatures from Ezekiel chapter one. You know, really, really, almost impossible to to draw what he's seeing, but it's incredible power and energy, and. Certainly makes it plain in in the, in the extended Ezekiel passage that these whirling creatures have almost no resistance from where they look and where they go. They're just they're, they're just you know they're, they're pervasive, powerful creatures. Theirs is the first prayer. That's the prayer of the angels, and their prayer is very simple, um, you know, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and it's it's very much picking up Isaiah chapter six, which we won't look at tonight. But you know the great Revelation that kicks off Isaiah, where he sees God, and he—that's the prayer, virtually the same prayer—and he he just says, "I'm ruined, he's dead, I've seen God, and, and, and there's kind of no comeback." Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but then the next prayer is the church's prayer, um, and the church answers, and essentially we're going to co- we're going to see, to put it bluntly, how much more sophisticated the church's prayer, prayers plural are, than the angel's prayer. And not just that they're more sophisticated, they seem to teach the angels what to say and teach the cosmos what to say. So that bottom line is there is, there is an amplification in subject matter, in scope, and in voices in these prayers. It begins with the 24 elders and it begins with every, the last one in 11, every creature in heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in it said. It's like the trees are singing, the clouds are singing, there's nothing that's not singing got it now, but it begins with the church. And only the church got it and, and the angels didn't get it. Does that make sense? It's epic. Now this implies an anthropology. It implies, and the early church fathers believed it, that only the church had the faculty of reason and only the, only humanity had the faculty of reason and the ability to understand God. Now, part of, you know, we, we talk about the fall and sin, and of course that's a doctrine which, despite the fact that personally I often attack it as being short-sighted, it's true, but but I just wish there is a th- there is a great emphasis in the fall on moral sin, which I find amusing. <sighs> Dear me.
1: Is that Calvin again?
0: <laughs> Oh, yes. My wife and I, we just struggle with a confession and it's hammered at us. Oh, I really... think people who believe in confession need to take it seriously. I've thought about creating a diary of sin where you could, during the week, keep a diary of sins. And it would be so much more precise if you did that. So I texted with my wife as I was on the plane. I'm sitting in the exit row mm-hmm. keeping my diary of sins. I said, darling, the waitress, the, the stewardess just looked at me like they always did because I always <laughs> sit in the exit row and said, have you read the card? And I said, yes knowing that this was a lie. I had not read the card. I had no intention. <laughs> <laughs> my question is, have I committed a sin?
1: It's <laughs> <with> yes. a venial <laughs> sin. And, and, and if so, how bad <laughs> is it? <laughs> you
0: can see how edifying this is. No of the Jesuits had so much fun with it. It just goes, oh, no, no, Well, it depends whether you meant it. Uh, perhaps it's your arrogance. I said it could be because I'm arrogant, and that's my real sin. Not that I lied, but arrogance. <laughs> um, I, I think what what we're going to talk about n- now, I actually think there is a really bigger problem and that's darkness. We're in the middle of a miracle and we don't get it. We've lost light universally and and we are you know that that's that's part of the loss so it's, I'm not saying there isn't moral loss, but I'm saying the idea of darkness that we're it's just so terrifying that we're in the middle, that God is very close to us all as humanity and we're not getting it, Like People saying, well, just why doesn't God prove to me that he exists? I mean, and and as they're talking, the vocalisation that's going on in a few seconds is a miracle. If I describe the, the beating of the heart through the four chambers that has happened probably 30 times since I began this sentence, it's a stunning miracle. God, would you do something to show yourself to me? Like this is darkness of unbelievable proportions. And it's it's just frightening that that, that we that people should every second be saying no to that light. So that's you know, and, and that's what the, but the church is here as the light to open that's what these prayers do. They're opening the light uh, of everybody up. And so then what happens is really epic is um, there is silence in heaven. There's silence in heaven because there are these scrolls and no one can, uh, can unlock them. No one can read them. No one can read the text of the meaning of creation. Um, and then, then the church, the next prayer, it's the, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed and he can read the scrolls. And that's the church's second prayer which is then echoed by the angels. So the angels don't talk about Jesus until the church talks about Jesus, so the church is sort of teaching them. And the sco- the scrolls are then kind of read out as seals. It's almost like the unfolding now of God's reclamation of the earth. And that's where the final prayer after that is now the um, every creature starts to praise God and many voices have this epic praise of God that his rule is finally accomplished, which is the last prayer. So that's the kind of the, the picture. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm-hmm. So so so, so read, read as almost the journey of the cosmos and the understanding of the cosmos, it's it's really dramatic and it's it's a phenomenal what motif for us to read it. So let's just look at a bit more detail. And so the first cycle of amplification is this prayer which we, we mentioned. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and is, and is to come, which is the, the prayer of the of the creatures, and. Um, uh, it's really so. So let's just—I've already said that echoes that famous prayer in Isaiah chapter six. What then happens after their prayer is. Um, the twenty-four elders pray. It says they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, "You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will uh, they were created and have their being." So this, th- these these two prayers come together. Now these are very very different prayers. The language and the subject matter is is very different, not just in degree but in kind, and 11, 4, 4, 8, 4, oh, sorry, 4, yes, that, that that's wrong. Yes, 411, the bottom one should be 4 verse 11. Sorry about that. Now, um, let's just look at the language um, and the first thing you notice is that only the pr- the prayers of the church are use the first and second person. The angels' prayers objectify God always. It's third person, it's about God, it's not to God. Only the church looks God in the eye and says, you and me. And this is, w- we just can't skip over this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Just can't skip over this. Uh, i tell you a little story. Um, I was in New York, New York last week, um, having one of my meetings Was with a friend He's a, a really significant business consultant. And we're talking about investment strategies, and uh, our people here have got a, uh, there was a, a letter by a man called Larry Pink, um, who owns BlackRock, who are the biggest investment funds in the world, $4.7 trillion. And Larry Pink sends a letter to the Fortune 500 CEOs, and he essentially sent a letter out chastising them all for short-term thinking, and we need long-term vision. It was a very good letter. We, we really liked it, and you know we, we picked it up here in the AFR. And and so, because it, it supports innovation, so we think that's a good thing. So I was t- I was telling my friend Paul about it, and said, uh, so have you? Uh, did you read the letter about Larry? Larry Pink. I don't know who Larry Pink is. I don't. Larry Pink is Larry Pink. Whoever, but you know, it's a great. that you read it? I'll, I'll send you a copy. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, look, the thing about Larry, yeah, you know, La- when when I was speaking to Larry last, he's he's kind of a bit of a self promoter, and and Larry really wants to blah blah blah. So he knows Larry. Larry's a mate of his. And there's just a world of difference between (coughs) talking about Larry, who everyone around the world is, and I had coffee with Larry last night and we were talking and here's what Larry really thinks and here's what I really think about Larry. Can you see there's just this huge elevation when actually uh, this person is my friend. So if you use that as an analogy, it's like, People talking about God, so I, was, I was having a conversation with him last night actually and, and uh, you know, he nudged me and he said, and I looked him in the eye, God, like this is like, So, uh, and I just keep thinking that I will talk to Abraham face to face like a, per- a man talks to his friend. So this is the church's position and, and of course this is sonship. Um, whereas the language of the as I say, it's almost like the, it's almost like the language the the third person language, the objectified language of the angels, is almost theoretical, like they'd been to Bible college or something, you know like, well, here are the attributes of God, they are spectators, they're not players. Secondly, Holy becomes worthy, which is really interesting to me. Really, really in- worthy is the word the churches use again and again, and the angels pick it up after they use it. Think about it. Holy is a funny word; could be you know translated in lots of different ways, but it essentially means separate. And it, it's like you know, and they're acknowledging the timeless and ethereal characteristics of God. It's it's wonderful. It's epic. Who was and is and is to come. Right? It's 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 just that transcendence of God that they are, that they are talking about um, Worthy says, man, I saw what you did the other day and you're worth it. There's an implication that you've earned this and you're worthy of it. Because you did something. And that's exactly what the church is saying. They're not talking about God. We saw you do this. We've seen these actions and we've interpreted them and man, they have earned you the right that's what worthy is that's their word it's it's a it's a much more it kind of drops down a register into into a world of contingency and action um, and uh, and they've seen it because you've acted God now uh, and then the next thing is they actually you know the, the great action that they've seen is creation that's where it all begins you created everything and this is where the church's revelation begins. This is why I think the Reformation went off the track, because they had a they downgraded their view of creation. They began with a view of redemption. The church here didn't, and the church fathers didn't. Creation fascinated them. And, and the 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 point about creation is that it's something that we're in and we participate in um, every day. So. Whereas the view of the angels is actually creationless. It, it, there's no creation in their view, it's just kind of the characteristics of God. and then, and then it, finally, but probably you know, most importantly, there's this insight into why you did it. that this was not an arbitrary act, it was by your will, because you wanted this. And I can only say that if I recognize. What wanting feels like, because I want things too. So this resonance of will to will gives the church mm-hmm. insight into God's motivation. So it's a, it's a whole lot closer. So that does that make sense? Those mm-hmm. those contrasts. Now, now I say next point. They imply. They imply an anthropology. They imply that these are not th- the language implies a faculty in church or in humanity. And uh, I think they imply, and this is not by no means complete, but they imply that to be made in the image of God gives humanity a insight into creation because we are creators. The creation act because we create as well. So so we we can we can we can really uh, recognize it. Um, <coughs> We are sensate beings. We feel and touch and we you know we receive stuff. And that 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 capacity to be sensate, which I don't think the angels have, means we are actually receiving the messages of God. If you see all of creation as as a text. Um, the the um, Importantly, the created order is our domain, not the domain of heaven. Um, and th- th- this, is, this is the area we know about. That, And even though today we live in the created order as a contested space, it is the church who understands that the whole created order is sacramental, is sacred. The whole, every piece of creation throbs with God. You know, I find it hard to put this into words, but it's a revelation very few people have. There was a day it hit me. I was sitting on the veranda at our house, we used to own, Boca looking out, and I can just remember this phrase from the scripture. I think it was, "The whole earth was filled with His glory." It was suddenly in my head, and I just suddenly sort of saw the ozone layer as a blanket of love over the earth, and and everything began to, s- from then on, as be- and you see it so much in the Psalms, this is all speaking everywhere. I uh, think I mentioned before Jonathan, one of Jonathan Edwards's great pieces of writings on a spider web. And, and so, um, but this is really important because Plato tried to get out of the created order into a transcendent space. And, 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 uh-huh. and the whole desire to go to heaven is a Platonic desire to get out of the created order. The created order will always be our domain. We have no other domain. This is our... W- we don't live without a created order. We don't live without a body. There is no disembodied experience possible. And, um, and, and thus, we should pay particular attention to it. Um, and, of course, we too have, have, have will and intentionality. Um, so, unique attributes in the first prayer... Um, the second prayer, um, the second kind of cycle of amplification that we go through, is um, I- is in Revelation five. So, le- le- sorry, let me just pause there. Um, did that that ring bells for for you guys? This idea of uh, created order being yes. sa- sacred, yeah, and 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 us being sacred, you know. Personally, I because it is partly it's my fascination, but it's also my job to 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 be creative, to run creative projects. That's my job. And and um, but what fascinates me the whole time is watching myself and my team and others do it. I just feel like it's treading on holy ground. I just I get goosebumps because uh, I'm looking at th- a- and marveling at the manipulative power of the mind. At the faculties that make it possible to, you know, redesign a product or a service, and I'm, I'm just thinking, this is holy. And, and I think that's the work of the Holy Spirit to unlock our eyes. And, and that's my world. I'm sure, if I was a doctor, <coughs> a lawyer, nurse, housewife, teacher, I, we would see totally other. But we're just, we're, we're, we're following the footsteps of God. It's, a, it's a tremendous revelation. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm speculating, but yes, I am. <laughs> I am, and the reason I say that, the reason I say that, I'm just speculating, of course. But the reason I say that is, sen- sensory impressions is very important in the cognitive process, because mm-hmm. it's where I get all the inputs to think. And there's a lot of philosophical debate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredibly important in, um, it's incredibly important in cognitive science. And at the moment, there is a great battle that you may be partly aware of, that people think machines can think. Artificial intelligence is a great—not uh, th- threat, but it's in the minds of some people that, and some very intelligent people. Our brain is only a machine. If that's true, then the whole image of God thing falls apart. And there's a famous contest every year, which you'd know about. Um oh, what's the guy who was the artificial intelligence guy? The uh, um no. Yeah, Turin. It's the Turin competition every year. You know the competition? The Turin
1: test.
0: The Turin test to see if if a human being can be more human than a computer. And sometimes the computer wins. (laughs) Um, And there's a great article in the Atlantic. So so the judges are on the other side of a wall, and you're typing, and you're having a conversation mediated by a computer to the judges, and then there's a computer having a conversation with the same judges via artificial intelligence. And the judges have got to pick, because all they know is that's X and that's Y. They don't know which is the machine and which is the human. Mm. And it's the, it's the, it's the first to, to prove to the judges that I'm a human. And, and it's really interesting. The more algorithmic and complicated you become, the more the computer is more human than you are. And there's a journalist who did the test. He finally cracked it that it's actually the simplest things that a six-year-old learns that the computer can't do, that says, that's a glass... It's the simplest... Where did I get the idea that that's a glass? I mean, that's what Aristotle called the axioms. I mean, it's just... It's impossible to, to, to get any algorithm to say that. And, and it's... So that the sensate experience is the primary experience that gives us all the inputs upon which we then start to the work. So to say we have sensory impressions is not a mild thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a big thing. It, it means we're alive. Because we... we all of our thoughts you know, w- the, the, the kind of, the full separation of the thoughts and the senses is actually false. And what that will lead to is a a d, you know, it'll be anti the body and all for the thoughts. Well, hang on, I can't think without touching, f- feeling, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's really connecting me to the creation. So anyway, I'm speculating about the angels there. Um, I don't think they play rugby, you know, which is to <laughs> their, right. or soccer or tennis, which is a pity for them um so
1: are they in heaven
0: if they don't play yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> um so so then what happens is this incredible dramatic chapter 5 where i saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed now as you read this scroll thing you uh, i think by far the most powerful interpretation of it is the entire medieval concept that all of nature is the text of God. The whole creation is a book. I think that's really powerful and quite biblical. And we're a book. But guess what? No one can read it. No one can read the book. And isn't that where we are today? No one can read the book of life. It's locked up, it's hieroglyphics, it's code. And that, to me, that's post-modernity. That's despair. We we can't read the text of life. And an angel proclam- uh, in a, uh, proclaimed in a loud voice, "Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll?" But no one, no one, in heaven or on earth, um, is worthy. Sorry, uh, could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. I think that's one of the most poignant verses in the Bible. I wept and wept because no one could look inside the scroll. No one could read the book of life. There's no meaning. There's no truth. I know I'm in something that no one understands. There couldn't be... Well, that becomes the seven seals. But, but, but I, I, you know, I got distracted from. To me, what's the most palpable meaning of this? By when I was younger, you know, what's seal number three, and <laughs> is it happening in 1982, <laughs> and all this crap? You know, <laughs> I mean, there's a far better way to look at it. Is th- is this scroll will unlock the meaning of the entire cosmos? Mm. Um, so then, of course, one of the angel, uh, the elders, uh, said, "Don't weep." line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne because it's very this is very very powerful. Jesus is always a lamb in revelation. Um, kills the bungee jump theory and um, circled by the four living creatures and the elders. and then their prayer is um, you are worthy to take the scroll, And to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is fabulous. So, this is the redemption prayer. The first one is the creation prayer. This is the redemption prayer. Um, The personal continues. Um, This is stunning. You've got to read it carefully. It doesn't say God purchased you. It doesn't say God purchased salvation for you. It says you were purchased for God. We are his inheritance. That is actually the prayer of Ephesians. Ephesians is that we are God's inheritance, not that we're inheriting stuff from God. It's actually double. But, but God is getting as much out of this as we are. Um the breadth, I just love it. It is the universality, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Um, and the climax is humanity will reign on the earth. We will reign the cosmos. That's, this is the epic, redemptive prayer. Now, great stuff, isn't it? <laughs> really interesting if you try and find possibly the more typical evangelical Summary of the gospel in that prayer, which is about you're going to hell, you must Jesus died on the cross so that your sins would be forgiven and they'll, you know, they'll be washed away and then you'll be saved. Actually, there's none of that in view here. It's actually not what they're saying, you know, I mean, they're not denying that, but it's too small a scale for what they're talking about. I, you know, I, I sort of paraphrase there's a massive act of Christ a massive act of Christ, has unlocked the text of creation. Uh, Meaning is unlocked universally um, and gives God back what he always wanted, which is us. We are the gift of Christ to God. Uh, We might want God, but he wants us a lot more. And the application of this is sweeping throughout ages and tribes, and the goal is that humanity will rule the cosmos. That's kind of a paraphrase <laughs> of what they're saying. And the forgiveness of sins is a qualification for that, but it's actually not even in view here. So that epic prayer um, interestingly is amplified. So it's immediately picked up first by the angels. So now the angels are taught and they follow. Um, they say virtually the same thing, except they don't use the, they don't say you. They said they say worthy is the lamb is still put, you know objectified third person, and then it's amplified um, beyond that. Um, uh, to uh, uh, sorry, it's thousands of angels who pick up the anthem. It says thousands upon thousands pick it up, and then that's every every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth, and and I think about that epic conclusion to Paul's opening to. Ephesians, the will of God that in the fullness of time He will gather together in one all things in Christ, all things on earth, all things in heaven will be consummated in God. So it's like that's, this prayer is looking at that consummation, and then the four living creatures, who actually began in, with "holy, holy, holy," say "Amen." So that's that's a, a kind of tremendous circle they've come. And then the finale after the scrolls are read out is in chapter eleven uh, where you get this enormous wrap up of the whole of cosmos and all is put to right, and all is judged I won't go into it in detail. the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever and and we give thanks to you, O Lord God's same personal first and second person um because you've taken your great power and begun to reign. So we've gone from creation to redemption to reign. They're the three big prayers in the cycle. Um, and there's this epic summary that God is judging all things. There's no question in my mind that there's epic judgment and putting to right. And, you know, I, I, I think that we can really declare that. The nature and the, the specifics of that judgment I'm less clear about, except there's a massive judgment. Um, which we all want in every single story. Nobody likes a story where the bad guy gets away with it. <laughs> so there's some kind of great summary, and I, d- I just found it very interesting the way this ends. The final people who will be destroyed are those who destroy the earth, um, you know, because the earth is what God loves. So this is the final consummation, and then the actual finale is the um, temple of heaven is open, which, and, and the dwelling of God is with man. So that's the epic cycles of the prayers in Revelation and what I've tried to show is how they imply this intimacy (coughs) between the church and humanity and God that is not shared by any of the angelic creatures or principalities and powers or whoever else. But the role of the church, the church is equipped to do that by being made in the image of God. The role of that church seems to be to amplify that throughout all creation and begin a new song which is echoed throughout all creation. So, good stuff, isn't it?
1: One, one question, Tony. Just two questions. um, One part of the same sort of issue. You you said earlier on this evening that I wrote it down here. um, You talked about will and purpose as if they were both. As if an insight to one gave an insight to the other. But wills really just the the mechanism by which a purpose. No, I put it the well, other way ra-
0: around. I'd put it the other way around. Um, I, I, the word "will," um, w- we have a very shrunken um, theory of will mm-hmm. in the modern world. It was much much richer in the classical world. It was much much richer in Aristotle, and it was picked up by many church theologians. The word was the the the, the Latin word was "habitus." So doesn't it means habit? We say habit, but is this idea that where does anything begin? It begins in an urge. It begins in this, and that's more will. It's an inchoate, inexpressed drive. So think about momentum. Think about Newton's law. For anything to accelerate, there needs to be a force on it, right? And and that's what Newton talked about, that we we don't have an inert world. Energy's got to start with some force. The greatness of Jonathan Edwards was he took Newtonian concepts and applied them to morality. That if I will, must begin everything, and that begins with God. So, but then a will, I I would read purpose as some kind of perhaps more formulation of that drive towards some plan.
1: Well, I'm seeing you as saying that there is a sense that we come to understand God's purpose by reading the reason why God created that whole creation narrative. Somehow we get an idea.
0: Exactly, um, and the reason is because... Is
1: that I, I don't see that.
0: Well, l- let me just put it to you simply. Um, we're the only ones with any show for the very simple reason that we too have a will. Now, I've just been reading... Let, let's give you an example. Uh, the New York Times Literary Review. Uh, famous essays written 50 years or more. They're, they're, they're rambling qualitative interviews with great writers read the one with T S Eliot fascinating mm. and of course it got to well why do you write so this is the heart of will what what drove you T S Eliot to want to put words on paper but that's exactly what whatever it is that's what drove god to do the universe uh, was it self expression was it he 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 denies very because if you i don't know if you read much T S Eliot but his poetry is profound. His interviews are just quixotic and elusive, and he plays dumb. And like, oh, I'm not sure what I meant by that. Um, he's famous for really <laughs> uh, being being um, eccentric. But he said, oh, no, I don't think. You, 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 he said, you just write, you write to get it off your chest. It's a throwaway line, but it's not bad. I had to write to get it off my chest, and perhaps God had to write, create, to get it off His chest. And Edwards goes into this in a lot of detail that we do not have a God; we have a communicating God. The heart of the creation is that God must expand, must amplify. Well, how, what's the worst thing for all of us is to be in solitary confinement? I can't talk to anyone. What's talking? Talking is getting it off my chest, you know. Well, so just examine yourself and find the motivations, and you'll get insight. That's what I'm meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you know that, of course, we can theologically say a lot about God wishing to share His glory and so on. And I gave quite a talk on this, um, you know, a couple of years back, in um, on the Trinitarian series, where essentially I just tried to summarise um, Jonathan Edwards. Remember that great essay, "The Ends for Which God Made the Cosmos." It's just, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um, look, I d- I, I, I've got a, f- uh, I'd, I'd like to finish with it. Just if we've got ten more minutes, we can give it, because um, that's all the time I've got tonight. But to look at the Church Fathers and what they did with this, just a quick, quick look, because not many. Uh, pe- I, you know, not many people are very familiar with the church fathers. I, I don't know, is anyone here familiar with them? Who they are? Mm-hmm. Some are, some aren't. Um, yeah, Peter would more look. I, I've been discovering them for a few years. and it's just, I just think they're fantastic. Um, but let me just, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so, so here are some of the really key ones: Justin Martyr, 103 to 1 to 165. Very influenced by Philo. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, 115 to 202, Lyon obviously France, Athanasius uh, and Clement of Alexandria. So they're, they're four great ones. There are others, but they're, they're great ones. Now, if I were to summarise, and I'm now going to compare them with the, the Reformation evangelical era. And just because I, I, I've, you know, I've read a lot of both, and this is how I'd put it, that to me the kind of Reformation was very much focused on the dynamics between sin and forgiveness with the enabling mechanism of the cross. And and you can understand with the kind of need to sort of oppose the Catholic Church how that would be what you would spend your entire time defending and developing. Uh, It was clearly, it is very clear on any reading of these people that did not dominate their thinking at all. What dominated their thinking was what we're talking about, was creation. They were very, very philosophical and very, very intelligent. You've got to put a seatbelt on to read them. And they interacted deeply with Plato, Aristotle. They were extremely educated, and they plundered them for ideas they thought were useful and built on them. Um, But they were intrigued by the origins of all things. So... Uh, the creation, and when they talk of the creation, as I said earlier, they will always talk of the logos, which of course is they're plundering a Greek term. Logos is not the, although it's translated word in John, it is not really, Lexus was the word for word. Logos is the big ideas behind the word that find expression in the word. So, in in there, in John, for instance, in John's Gospel, saying "calling Jesus Logos," he was he was saying to the Greeks, "He's the governing idea behind the universe." That might be a rough translation of it. Um, they, the hub of their entire, and, and, and the other th- the thing I like about them is they were far more Christ-centric than the than the reformers. To be blunt, you know, it, my number one. My number one kinda measure of, of the degree of edification in any talk is did I come a- out thinking about Christ or thinking about myself? It's a very good test. Uh, more than thinking about Christ, was I blown away? And uh, you know, rare red people have done that and are just like this is fantastic, versus introspection and so on. Um, they were mesmerized by the incarnation. Mesmerized by that and um and then the, and then the extension of the rule of god so it's not that they didn't believe about sin and forgiveness and so on they certainly did but they put it in a bigger picture does that summary make some sense to people even if you haven't read it? now um my dear friend heather who is in the arms of the lord and died this morning at 6am um she still said the most profound thing i've ever heard anyone say to me about jesus certainly from someone who wasn't a Christian and this was at a party 15 years ago, or 20 years ago a noisy wedding and Tony, what do you really believe and what's, what's, what are you on about and through the loud music we talked and it was an unfinished conversation but I'll never forget what she said to me which is up there, which is it sounds like Jesus has confirmed all that we suspected was true sounds like Jesus has confirmed all that we suspected was true true about humanity, true about life, true about meaning. And that's a really good summary of the, uh, of the early church fathers. Um, as I say, they, uh, they were centred on the incarnation and essentially it wasn't just the incarnation on its own but its implications for humanity and that the inc- incarnation confirms mm-hmm. the potential of humanity. So let's just I'll just give you a brief touch of some of their ideas um, and uh, then we'll conclude with this. Uh, Justin was Justin was incredibly creative and in, and intellectual. And for him, Je- Jesus is the incarnation of God's eternal Word through whom all things were created. It follows that all those created in the image of God reflect Christ. This is very Bonhoeffer. You've got to read it all, he believes Christ is everywhere. Every reflection of imago Deo is a reflection of Christ. And and therefore a participation to some extent in the mediation of the eternal word in so far as their being is sustained by it. Our being is sustained by the word of God. So he was I mean, he wasn't a universalist, but he believed any act of reason, any act of great judgment, including any great statement by Plato or a great statement by Cicero, was Christ speaking. That's what he believed. So they were, now you can, you know, of course if you came to that with a tight evangelical mind, you'd be freaked. But they just had too small a vision of Jesus. For him, Jesus was everywhere. Any Ref, any any um, uh, expression of morality, excellence was an expression of Christ. Otherwise, we've got the tidy little Christ, and there's all this other stuff going on we can't explain. What would this do for evangelism? You can sort of you're recognizing Christ and the potential of Christ in a lot of people, even though they might not know name him. You know, it's a, it's a much better place to begin our dialogue than you're a sinner going to hell. Let me give you some good news about that. Um, now, so that's just a t- yes. Yes, and that would be very similar, and Carl Barth was very much in their tradition, very much picking it up. Yeah, I love that too. Um, I think uh, I think it was Clement who, for him, music was the ultimate metaphor of the song of God through through all things. Athanasius, this is like this is a paragraph, right? And you'll just know how hey, you've got to read this clause by clause and let it all sink in. You can't speed read Athanasius. He wrote this when he was he wrote this when he was twenty four. And then this word was made manifest uh, when the Word of God became man, assimilating himself to man and man to himself, so that by means of this resemblance to the Son man might become precious to the Father. this just incredible entanglement between the incarnation and the reflex back of humanity to, God, to, to the Father, and the idea of an assimilation. It's the prayer of revelation. It, it, it's, the prayer, it's the prayer of revelation. And this is incredible. For in times past, it was said that man was made in the image of God, but it was not shown. For the word was yet invisible after whose image man was created. So the incarnation, it was shown that we're made in the image of God. Jesus showed us and proved us we're made in the image of God. That's what that's what Hebrews says, and um, they went further. I, I won't go to it now, but they distinguished between image and likeness. So the image of the faculties of God and the likeness of God might be stuff we've lost, like you know, immortality and um, you know holiness and other things. So they, they kind of pulled that apart. But it's just it's it's breathtaking stuff, isn't it? And, and they. They were just intrigued by the anthropology suggested by the incarnation and confirmed by Jesus. By the way, Athanasius' book on the incarnation is really worth buying. It's not very long. It was the foundation. Thank you, Andrew, for the book of the Cruelty of Heresy. But it was really yeah. the foundation of the modern faith. Um, it's on, you know, Athanasius's uh, um, book on the incarnation, from which this came.
1: And they had huge arguments about how you visualise.
0: They, they, they did, and and uh, Athanasius was the guy who, as it were, solved the problem.
1: They killed
0: one. Another. They killed one another. They
1: were chasing one, so he was on a run-up. He was ahead of the. Yeah, he pulled over to the side, and they recognised him coming up. And they said, "Did you see him?" He said, "Yes." <laughs> that way, that was Athanasius. Was that, was that a sin, though? No. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> oh,
0: there you go. Now this is a good question. And then they took off. <laughs> so um look at well this is the last slide. This is the most amazing one. They actually had this stunning doctrine of deification theo- theosis, theosis um by the way, so did Jonathan Edwards, who talked about the uh church quadrifying the trinity um, and um, so Irenaeus' irenaeus's stunning idea is is recapitulation i Ever since I heard this phrase a few years ago, I've just been utterly intrigued by it. It's all through Irenaeus. People have written, what does he mean by it? He was picking up on Ephesians 1 verse 10, which in itself is definitely a candidate for the most intriguing verse in the Bible. I've already quoted it. He will gather together. You know, in all wisdom and insight, he's made known to us his will, the mystery of his will that in the fullness of time he would gather together in one all things in Christ, whether things in heaven or things on, the, on earth. The phrase gather together in one is the phrase that's one Greek word. Oh, how on earth is this possible that the whole universe will be synchronised in Christ? But that phrase is, the, is what he, he, he... Recapitulation was his word. For that. that Christ is going to gather together in one all things. And he just wrote and wrote and wrote about it. Um, and he was fascinated by what he called the great exchange whereby God became what we are in order to make us what he is himself. Um, And uh, Clement, who is fantastic, um, by the way, an extremely advanced epistemology that looks like it was written in last year in terms of hermeneutics, and uh, uh, it's just phenomenal because in the faith versus reason debate, which was happening then, Clement took faith out of piety, and he just said, well, all human beings only know things by faith and intuition. And, you know, it was a tremendous um, argument he put forward. But Clement, the word of God became man, that you may learn from man how man may become God. So the implications of their, their kind of, it's almost like for them the incarnation unlocked the mystery of creation. Uh, resolve the problems Plato couldn't resolve between transcendence and mortality and therefore if I kind of fast forward it the trajectory now the incarnation is taking me on is that we will actually the recapitulation will be back to the image of God but more so so we are now like God and that was the trajectory of of their argument.